0: Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 1 of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 1. At the slight creaking made my McMaster in pushing open his door, Teachin started violently. He was sitting in a smoking jacket, playing patience engrossedly in a sort of garret bedroom it had a sloping roof outlined by black oak beams which cut into squares the cream-coloured patent distemper of the walls the room contained also a four-post bedstead a corner cupboard in black oak and many rush mats on a polished oak floor a very irregular planking Teachins who hated these disinterred and waxed relics of the past sat in the centre of the room at a flimsy card-table beneath a white-shaded electric light of a brilliance that, in those surroundings, appeared unreasonable. This was one of those restored old groups of cottages that it was, at that date, the fashion to convert into hostelries. To it, McMaster, who was in search of the inspiration of the past, had preferred to come. Titchens, not desiring to interfere with his friend's culture, had accepted the quarters, though he would have preferred to go to a comfortable modern hotel as being less affected and cheaper. Accustomed to what he called the grown oldness of a morose, rambling Yorkshire manor house, he disliked being among collected and rather pitiful bits which, he said, made him feel ridiculous, as if he were trying to behave seriously at a fancy dress ball. Master, on the other hand, with gratification and a serious air, would run his fingertips along the bevelings of a darkened piece of furniture, and would declare it genuine Chippendale or Jacobean oak, as the case might be. And he seemed to gain an added seriousness and weight of manner with each piece of ancient furniture that down the years he thus touched. But teachins would declare that you could tell the beastly thing was a fake by just cocking an eye at it, and if the matter happened to fall under the test of professional dealers in old furniture, Tichens was the more often in the right of it, and McMaster, sighing slightly, would prepare to proceed still further along the difficult road to connoisseurship. Eventually, by conscientious study, he got so far as at times to be called in by Somerset House to value great properties for probate, an occupation at once distinguished and highly profitable. Teachins swore, with the extreme vehemence of a man who has been made, but who much dislikes being seen, to start. McMaster, in evening dress he looked extremely miniature, said, I'm sorry, old man, I know how much you dislike being interrupted, but the general is in a terrible temper. Teachins rose stiffly, lurched over to an eighteenth-century rosewood folding washstand, took from its top a glass of flat whisky and soda, and gulped down a large quantity. He looked about uncertainly, perceived a notebook on a Chippendale bureau, made a short calculation in pencil, and looked at his friend momentarily. McMaster said again, I'm sorry, old man, I must have interrupted one of your immense calculations. Teachin said, You haven't, I was only thinking. I'm just as glad you've come. What did you say? McMaster repeated, I said the general is in a terrible temper. It's just as well you didn't come up to dinner. Tichin said, He isn't. He isn't in a temper. He's as pleased as Punch at not having to have these women up before him. McMaster said, He says he's got the police scouring the whole county for them and that you'd better leave by the first train tomorrow. Tichin said, I won't. I can't. I've got to wait here for a wire from Sylvia. McMaster groaned, oh dear, oh dear. Then he said hopefully, but we could have it forwarded to Hythe. Teachin said with some vehemence, I tell you, I won't leave here. I tell you, I've settled it with the police and that swine of a cabinet minister. I've mended the leg of the canary of the wife of the police constable. Sit down and be reasonable. The police don't touch people like us. McMaster said, I don't believe you realise the public feeling there is. "'Of course I do, amongst people like Sandbark,' Tidgin said. "'Sit down, I tell you. Have some whisky.' He filled himself out another long tumbler, and holding it, dropped into a too-low-seated reddish wicker armchair that had cretonne fixings. Beneath his weight, the chair sagged a good deal, and his dress-shirt front bulged up to his chin. McMaster said, "'What's the matter with you?' Titchin's eyes were bloodshot.' I tell you, Teachin said, I'm waiting for a wire from Sylvia. McMaster said, oh. And then, it can't come tonight, it's getting on for one. It can, Teachin said, I've fixed it up with the postmaster all the way up to town. It probably won't come, because Sylvia won't send it until the last moment, to bother me. Nonetheless, I'm waiting for a wire from Sylvia, and this is what I look like. McMaster said, that woman's the cruelest beast. "'You might,' Tichen's interrupted. "'Remember that you're talking about my wife.' "'I don't see,' McMaster said, "'how one can talk about Sylvia without. "'The line is a perfectly simple one to draw,' Titchin said. "'You can relate a lady's actions if you know them, "'and are asked to. "'You mustn't comment. "'In this case, you don't know the lady's actions even, "'so you may as well hold your tongue.' "'He sat looking straight in front of him. "'McMaster sighed from deep in his chest.' He asked himself if this was what sixteen hours waiting had done for his friend, what were all the remaining hours going to do? Teachin said, I shall be fit to talk about Sylvia after two more whiskies. Let's settle your other perturbations first. The fair girl is called Wannop, Valentine Wannop. That's the Professor's name, McMaster said. She's the late Professor Wannop's daughter, Teachin said. She's also the daughter of the novelist. McMaster interjected, but... "'She supported herself for a year after the professor's death "'as a domestic servant, Teach, and said, "'Now she's housemaid for her mother, the novelist, "'in an inexpensive cottage. "'I should imagine the two experiences would make her desire "'to better the lot of her sex.' McMaster again interjected a but. "'I got that information from the policeman "'whilst I was putting his wife's canary's leg in splints.' McMaster said, "'The policeman you knocked down?' His eyes expressed unreasoning surprise, he added. He knew Miss, er, uh, Wannup, then. You would not expect much intelligence from the police of Sussex, Teachin said, but you would be wrong. PC Finn is clever enough to recognise the young lady who, for several years past, has managed the constabulary wives' and children's annual tea and sports. He says Miss Wannup holds the quarter-mile, half-mile, high-jump, long-jump and putting-the-weight records for East Sussex. That explains how she went over that dyke in such tidy style. And precious glad the good simple man was when I told him he was to leave the girl alone. He didn't know, he said, how he'd ever had the face to serve the warrant on Miss Wannop. The other girl, the one that squeaked, is a stranger, a Londoner, probably. McMaster said, You told the policeman. I gave him, Teachin said, the right honourable Stephen Fenwick Waterhouse's compliments, and he'd be much obliged if the PC would hand in a no-can-do report in the matter of those ladies every morning to his inspector. I gave him also a brand new five-pun note from the cabinet minister, and a couple of quid and the price of a new pair of trousers from myself. So, he's the happiest constable in Sussex, a very decent fellow. He told me how to know a dog otter's spoor from a gravid bitch's, but that wouldn't interest you. He began again, don't look so inexpressibly foolish. I told you I'd been dining with that swine. No, I oughtn't to call him a swine after eating his dinner. Besides, he's a very decent fellow. You didn't tell me you'd been dining with Mr. Waterhouse, McMaster said. I hope you remembered that, as he's amongst other things the President of the Funded Debt Commission, he's the power of life and death over the Department and us. You didn't think, Teechins answered, that you are the only one to dine with the Great Ones of the Earth? I wanted to talk to that fellow about those figures their cursed crowd made me fake. I meant to give him a bit of my mind. You didn't, McMaster said with an expression of panic. Besides, they didn't ask you to fake the calculation. They only asked you to work it out on the basis of given figures. Anyhow, Teachin said, I gave him a bit of my mind. I told him that at threepence it must run the country, and certainly himself as a politician, to absolute ruin. McMaster uttered a deep, Good Lord, and then, But won't you ever remember you're a government servant? He could... Mr. Waterhouse-teacher asked me if I wouldn't consent to be transferred to his secretary's department, and when I said go to hell, he walked around the streets with me for two hours arguing. I was working out the chances on a fourpence-halfpenny basis for him when you interrupted me. I've promised to let him have the figures when he goes up by the one thirty on Monday. McMaster said, you haven't, but by Jove you're the only man in England that could do it. That was what Mr. Waterhouse said, Titchens commented. He said old Ingleby had told him so. I do hope, McMaster said, that you answered him politely. I told him, Titchens answered, that there were a dozen men who could do it as well as I, and I mentioned your name in particular. But I couldn't, McMaster answered. Of course, I could convert a threepenny rate into a fourpence halfpenny, but these are the actuarial variations. They're infinite. I couldn't touch them. Ditchin said negligently, I don't want my name mixed up with an unspeakable affair. When I give him the papers on Monday, I shall tell him you did most of the work. Again McMaster groaned. Nor was this distress mere altruism. Immensely ambitious for his brilliant friend, McMaster's ambition was one ingredient of his strong desire for security. At Cambridge he had been perfectly content with a moderate, quite respectable place on the list of mathematical postulants. He knew that that made him safe, and he had still more satisfaction in the thought that it would warrant him in never being brilliant in after life. But when Teachins, two years after, had come out as a mere second wrangler, McMaster had been bitterly and loudly disappointed. He knew perfectly well that Teachins simply hadn't taken trouble, and ten chances to one it was on purpose that Teachins hadn't taken trouble. For the matter of that, for Teachins it wouldn't have been trouble. And, indeed, to McMaster's upbraidings, which McMaster hadn't spared him, Teachings had answered that he hadn't been able to think of going through the rest of his life with a beastly placard like Senior Wrangler hung about his neck. But McMaster had early made up his mind that life for him would be safest if he could go about, not very much observed, but still an authority, in the midst of a body of men all labelled. He wanted to walk down Pall Mall on the arm precisely of a largely lettered senior wrangler to return eastward on the arm of the youngest Lord Chancellor England had ever seen, to stroll down Whitehall in familiar converse with a world-famous novelist, saluting on the way a majority of my Lord's commissioners of the Treasury. And after tea for an hour at the club, all these in a little group should treat him with the courtesy of men who respected him for his soundness. Then he would be safe and he had no doubt that Teachens was the most brilliant man in England of that day, so that nothing caused him more anguish than the thought that Teachens might not make a brilliant and rapid career towards some illustrious position in the public services. He would very willingly, he desired indeed nothing better, have seen Teachens pass over his own head. It did not seem to him a condemnation of the public services that this appeared to be unlikely. Yet McMaster was still not without hope. He was quite aware that there are other techniques of careers than that which he had prescribed for himself. He could not imagine himself, even in the most deferential way, correcting a superior. Yet he could see that, though Teachins treated almost every hierarch as if he were a born fool, no one very much resented it. Of course, Teachins was a teachins of Groby, but was that going to be enough to live on for ever? Times were changing, and McMaster imagined this to be a democratic age. But Teechan's went on, with both hands as it were throwing away opportunity and committing outrage. That day McMaster could only consider to be one of disaster. He got up from his chair and filled himself another drink. He felt himself to be distressed and to need it. Slouching amongst his croutons, Teechan's was gazing in front of him. He said, here, without looking at McMaster, and held out his long glass. Into it McMaster poured whiskey with a hesitating hand. Teachin said, Go on. McMaster said, It's late. We're breakfasting at the Doucherman's at ten. Teachin's answered, Don't worry, sonny. We'll be there for your pretty lady. He added, Wait another quarter of an hour. I want to talk to you. McMaster sat down again, and deliberately began to review the day. It had begun with disaster, and in disaster it had continued. And with something like a bitter irony, McMaster remembered and brought up now for digestion the parting words of General Campion to himself. The General had limped with him to the hall door up at Mountby and standing patting him on the shoulder, tall, slightly bent and very friendly, had said, Look here, Christopher Teachins is a splendid fellow, but he needs a good woman to look after him. Get him back to Sylvia as quick as you can. Had a little tiff, haven't they? Nothing serious? Chrissy hasn't been running after the skirts? No, I dare say a little. No? Well then. McMaster had stood like a gatepost so appalled. He had stuttered, no, no. We've known them both so long, the General went on, Lady Claudine in particular. And believe me, Sylvia is a splendid girl, straight as a die, the soul of loyalty to her friends, and fearless. She'd face the devil in his rage. You should have seen her out with the Belvoir. Of course you know her. Well, then. McMaster had just managed to say that he knew Sylvia, of course. Well, then, the general had continued. You'll agree with me that if there is anything wrong between them, he's to blame. And it will be resented very bitterly. He wouldn't set foot in this house again. But he says he's going out to her and Mrs Satiswaite. I believe McMaster had begun. I I believe he is... Well then, the general had said, it's all right, but Christopher Teachins needs a good woman's backing. He's a splendid fellow. There are a few young fellows for whom I have more, I could almost say, respect, but he needs that to ballast him. In the car running down the hill from Mountby, McMaster had exhausted himself in the effort to restrain his execrations of the general. He wanted to shout that he was a pig-headed old fool, a meddlesome ass but he was in the car with the two secretaries of the cabinet minister, the Right Honourable Edward Fenwick Waterhouse, who, being himself an advanced liberal down for a weekend of golf, preferred not to dine at the house of the Conservative member. At that date there was, in politics, a phase of bitter social feud between the parties, a condition that had not till lately been characteristic of English political life. The prohibition had not extended itself to the two younger men. McMaster was not unpleasantly aware that these two fellows treated him with a certain deference. They had seen McMaster being talked to familiarly by General Lord Edward Campion. Indeed, they and the car had been kept waiting whilst the general patted their fellow guest on the shoulder, held his upper arm, and spoke in a low voice into his ear. But that was the only pleasure that McMaster got out of it. Yes, the day had begun disastrously with Sylvia's letter. It ended, if it was ended, almost more disastrously with the general's eulogy of that woman. During the day he had nerved himself to having an immensely disagreeable scene with Teachins. Teachins must divorce the woman. It was necessary for the peace of mind of himself, of his friends, of his family, for the sake of his career, in the very name of decency. In the meantime, Teachins had rather forced his hand. It had been a most disagreeable affair. They had arrived at Rye in time for lunch, at which Teachins had consumed the best part of a bottle of burgundy. During lunch, Teachins had given McMaster Sylvia's letter to read, saying that, as he should later consult his friend, his friend had better be made acquainted with the document. The letter had appeared extraordinary in its effrontery, for it said nothing. Beyond the bare statement, I am now ready to return to you, it occupied itself simply with the fact that Mrs. Teachins wanted, could no longer get on without, the services of her maid, whom she called Hullo Central. If Teachins wanted her, Mrs. Teachins, to return to him, he was to see that Hullo Central was waiting on the doorstep for her, and so on. She added the detail that there was no one else, underlined she could bear round her while she was retiring for the night. On reflection, McMaster could see that this was the best letter the woman could have written if she wanted to be taken back, for had she extended herself into either excuses or explanations, it was ten chances to one Teachins would have taken the line that he couldn't go on living with a woman capable of such a lapse in taste. But McMaster had never thought of Sylvia as wanting in savoir-faire. It had nonetheless hardened him in his determination to urge his friend to divorce. He had intended to begin this campaign in the fly, driving to pay his call on the Reverend Mr Dushaman, who in early life had been a personal discipline of Mr Ruskin, and a patron and acquaintance of the poet-painter, the subject of McMaster's monograph. On this drive, Teachins preferred not to come. He said that he would loaf about the town and meet McMaster at the golf club towards 4.30. He was not in the mood for making new acquaintances. McMaster, who knew the pressure under which his friend must be suffering, thought this reasonable enough, and drove off up Iden Hill by himself. Few women had ever made so much impression on McMaster as Mrs. Dushaman. He knew himself to be in a mood to be impressed by almost any woman, but he considered that that was not enough to account for the very strong influence she at once exercised over him. There had been two young girls in the drawing-room when he had been ushered in but they had disappeared almost simultaneously and although he had noticed them immediately afterwards riding past the window on bicycles he was aware that he would not have recognized them again from her first words on rising to greet him not thee mr mcmaster he had had eyes for no one else it was obvious that the reverend mr ducherman must be one of those clergymen of considerable wealth and cultural taste who not infrequently adorn the church of england the rectory itself a great warm-looking manor house of very old red brick was abutted on to by one of the largest tithe barns that mcmaster had ever seen the church itself with a primitive roof of oak shingles nestled in the corner formed by the ends of rectory and tithe barn and was by so much the smallest of the three, and so undecorated, that but for its little belfry it might have been a good cow-buyer. All three buildings stood on the very edge of the little row of hills that looks down on the Romney Marsh. They were sheltered from the north wind by a great symmetrical fan of elms, and from the south by a very tall hedge and shrubbery, all of remarkable yews. It was, in short, an ideal cure of souls for a wealthy clergyman of cultured tastes, for there was not so much as a peasant's cottage within a mile of it. To McMaster, in short, this was the ideal English home. Of Mrs. Dusherman's drawing-room itself, contrary to his habits, for he was sensitive and observant in such things, he could afterwards remember little except that it was perfectly sympathetic. Three long windows gave on to a perfect lawn, on which, isolated and grouped, stood standard rose trees, symmetrical half-globes of green foliage, picked out with flowers like bits of carved pink marble. Beyond the lawn was a low stone wall. Beyond that the quiet expanse of the marsh shimmered in the sunlight. The furniture of the room was, as to its woodwork, brown, old, with the rich softness of much polishing with beeswax. What pictures there were, McMaster recognised at once as being by Simeon Solomon, one of the weaker and more frail aesthetes. aureoled palish heads of ladies carrying lilies that were not very like lilies. They were in the tradition, but not the best of the tradition. McMaster understood, and later Mrs. Dusherman confirmed him in the idea, that Mr. Duchaman kept his more precious specimens of work in a sanctum, leaving to the relatively public room, good-humouredly and with slight contempt, these weaker specimens. That seemed to stamp Mr. Dusherman at once as being of the elect. Mr. Dusherman in person was, however, not present, and there seemed to be a good deal of difficulty in arranging a meeting between the two men. Mr. Dusherman, his wife said, was much occupied at the weekends. She added, with a faint and rather absent smile, the word, naturally. McMaster at once saw that it was natural for a clergyman to be much occupied during the weekends. With a little hesitation, Mrs. Dusherman suggested that Mr. McMaster and his friend might come to lunch on the next day, Saturday, but McMaster had made an engagement to play the foursome with General Campion, half the round from twelve to one-thirty, half the round from three to half-past four. And as their then-present arrangement stood, McMaster and Teachins were to take the six-thirty train to Hythe. That ruled out either tea or dinner next day. With sufficient but not too extravagant regret, Mrs. Dusherman raised her voice to say, Oh dear, oh dear but you must see my husband and the pictures after you have come so far. A rather considerable volume of harsh sound was coming through the end wall of the room, the barking of dogs, apparently the hurried removal of pieces of furniture, or perhaps of packing cases, guttural ejaculations. Mrs. Dusherman said with her faraway air and deep voice, they are making a good deal of noise. Let us go into the garden and look at my husband's roses, if you've a moment more to give us. McMaster quoted to himself, I looked and saw your eyes in the shadow of your hair. There was no doubt that Mrs. Duchaman's eyes, which were of a dark pebble blue, were actually in the shadow of her blue-black, very regularly waved hair. The hair came down on the square, low forehead. It was a phenomenon that McMaster had never before really seen and he congratulated himself this was one more confirmation if confirmation were needed of the powers of observation of the subject of his monograph mrs duchemin bore the sunlight her dark complexion was clear there was over the cheekbones a delicate suffusion of light carmen her jawbone was singularly clear-cut "'to the pointed chin, like an alabaster medieval saint. "'She said, "'Of course, you're Scotch. "'I'm from old Reiki myself. "'McMaster would have known it. "'He said he was from the port of Leith. "'He could not imagine hiding anything from Mrs. Dusherman. "'Mrs. Dusherman said, with renewed insistence, "'Oh, but of course you must see my husband in the pictures. "'Let me see. "'We must think. "'Would breakfast now.' McMaster said that he and his friend were government servants and up to rising early. He had a great desire to breakfast in that house. She said, At a quarter to ten, then, our car will be at the bottom of your street. It's a matter of ten minutes only, so you won't go hungry long. She said, gradually gaining animation, that of course McMaster would bring his friend. He could tell Teachins that he should meet a very charming girl. She stopped and added suddenly, Probably, at any rate. She said the name, which McMaster caught as Wanstead, and possibly another girl, and Mr Horstead or something like it, her husband's junior curate. She said reflectively, yes, we might try quite a party, and added, quite noisy and gay. I hope your friends talkative. McMaster said something about trouble. Oh, it can't be too much trouble, she said. Besides, it might do my husband good she went on, Mr. Duchiman is apt to brood, it's perhaps too lonely here, and added the rather astonishing words, after all. And driving back in the fly, McMaster said to himself that you couldn't call Mrs. Dusherman ordinary, at least. Yet meeting her was like going into a room that you had long left and never ceased to love. It felt good. It was perhaps partly her Edinburghness. McMaster allowed himself to coin that word. There was in Edinburgh a society, he himself had never been privileged to move in it, but its annals are part of the literature of Scotland, where the ladies are all great ladies in tall drawing-rooms, circumspect yet shrewd, still yet with a sense of the comic, frugal yet warmly hospitable. It was perhaps just Edinburghness that was wanting in the drawing-rooms of his friends in London. Mrs. Cressy, the Honourable Mrs. Lemieux, and Mrs. Delaunay were all almost perfection in manner, in speech, in composure. But then they were not young, they weren't Edinburgh, and they weren't strikingly elegant. Mrs. Dusherman was all three. Her assured, tranquil manner she would retain to any age. It betokened the enigmatic soul of her sex, but physically she couldn't be more than thirty. That was unimportant, for she would never want to do anything in which physical youth counted. She would never, for instance, have occasion to run. She would always just move floatingly. He tried to remember the details of her dress. It had certainly been dark blue, and certainly of silk, that rather coarsely woven exquisite material that has on its folds as of a silvery shimmer with minute knots, but very dark blue and it contrived to be at once artistic, absolutely in the tradition, and yet well cut. Very large sleeves, of course, but still with a certain fit. She had worn an immense necklace of yellow-polished amber of the dark blue. And Mrs. Duchemin had said, over her husband's roses, that the blossoms always reminded her of little mouldings of pink cloud come down for the cooling of the earth. A charming thought. Suddenly he said to himself, what a mate for teachings and his mind added, why should she not become an influence? A vista opened before him in time. He imagined Teachens in some way proprietorily responsible for Mrs Doucherman, quite poor Le Bon, tranquilly passionate and accepted motif, and immensely improved by the association and himself in a year or two, bringing the at last found lady of his delight to sit at the feet of Mrs. Dusherman. The lady of his delight, while circumspect, would be also young and impressionable, to learn the mysterious assuredness of manner, the gift of dressing, the knack of wearing amber and bending over standard roses, and the Edinburghness. End of Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 1